Dear Father in heaven, thank you for providing a place for us to meet. The wind is blowing hard outside, but uh, that has not stopped us from having a meeting. And we're thankful for that. Thank you for the chance to be here. And we pray for your blessing. We pray for the Holy Spirit. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you will be the teacher uh, above and beyond anything that I say, that, that ultimately your voice will be heard. My goal is to direct people to, direct people to you and to uh, your word. So we pray for your blessing now. May the Holy Spirit enlighten us and give us discernment as we look at the word of God in Revelation chapter 17. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, I hope you can, uh, you can tell after last night's meeting or this morning's meeting why uh, many people have been captivated by Revelation 17. It's quite a chapter. And the more you read it and just digest it and memorize it and think about it, uh, I think you will sense that there is tremendous power in this chapter. And I'm convinced that a better understanding of Revelation 17 is going to help us to get ready for Revelation 18, which is the final loud call, or we call the loud cry, that goes out to the world right before Jesus comes. So God has given us this chapter for a reason. He wants us to study it. He wants us to learn it as much as we can uh, to understand what it says and to, what, and to understand what's happening in the world. And the main reason, ultimately, is that it would... It would help us, help us spiritually, bring us closer to Jesus and help us to get ready to stand when the final winds blow, when the final storm hits. Okay, so we've just read verse uh, 10 and verse 11. Again, the angel told John that five, that there are seven kings and five have fallen. One is and the other one has not yet come. And then he also refers to the beast itself, that the beast was and is not and yet he will come back and he will go into perdition. Now I'm going to share with you my view on this. Uh, I realize that there's a lot of different views out there in the world and uh, I've, I, I feel confident that what I'm going to share with you is solid information. Uh, if I didn't, I wouldn't be talking about this subject. I would talk about something else. So I'm going to share with you the results of my study and hopefully it will be a big blessing to you. That's, that's my goal. Now, earlier today, uh, in part two, I zeroed in on verse nine, the verse right before, verse 10 and 11. And verse nine says, here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads, which are the symbol, are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And I talked about earlier what I call the symbol to literal principle that when in the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, there's a symbol used, and then there's an interpretation. We see this in Daniel 2, in Daniel 7, in Daniel 8, in Revelation 17. We see it again and again and again that a symbol is interpreted literally. And so I've done that with the seven heads are seven mountains. And as I mentioned, uh, the Greek word for mountains can also be translated hills. Seven mountains are seven hills. And historically, the seven-hilled city of Rome has been uh, famous or infamous. And it's a fact that the different 
phases of the Roman Empire, whether it's Imperial Rome, it sat there in Rome, whether it was Papal Rome during the Dark Ages, sat there in Rome, and even today, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, its headquarters is still inside the city of Rome. Now, here's another uh, very interesting point that I've discovered, and I think it is solid. And this is another principle that I've, that I've come to adopt in my study. I mentioned earlier uh, the weight of evidence principle, where you look at all the clues and try to come to a conclusion. I also believe in what I call the Daniel and Revelation principle, that when we're studying especially Revelation 17, which is a portal to Revelation 13, that we should stick with the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation to try to put the pieces together. And then we have the symbol to literal principle. And here's another principle. I call this the dual application principle. Now, I'll show you where I get that. And I, just to clarify, I do not apply the dual application principle to the time prophecies, to the 1260 years, uh, or the 2300 days in Daniel 8, or the uh, 490 days in Daniel 9. I don't apply this to time prophecy. I apply it to uh, certain other sections. We do know that, that Jesus used this principle in Matthew 24 when he talked about the destruction of Jerusalem and how then he also applied that to the end of the world. There was a dual application. What happened to Jerusalem is going to happen in a larger sense around the world. We see that principle many times in the Old Testament. And let me show you where it is in the book of Revelation. Now, it's very interesting if you back up to verse 7. Revelation 17, 7 says, The angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery, remember that word mystery, of the woman, and that woman is a false church, and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. So notice we have a mystery, we have a church, and we also have the number seven. Now, I've discovered in my studying Revelation, if you go back to chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, we also find another mystery, another church, and another set of sevens. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is seen by John in a vision, and he's walking in the midst of, who remembers what? Of the seven golden candlesticks. That's right. Jesus, uh, John sees Jesus walking in the midst of the seven candlesticks at the beginning of the book. And in verse 20, Revelation 1 verse 20, Jesus begins to explain what John just saw. And he says, he's going to explain the mystery, which we read in Revelation 17. So here's a good mystery. And in Revelation 17 is, a, is the mystery of pointing to an evil power. So this is a good, a good mystery. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. And then Jesus said, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which you saw are, and what are they? They are the seven churches, right? So there's the symbol, the seven candlesticks, and the application is they are literally seven literal churches. Now, uh, as I was studying this, it hit me. 
that when you look at Revelation 1 and Revelation 17, you have two mysteries, right? Mystery in chapter 1, mystery in chapter 17. You also have two churches. You have the true church of God, and then you have the, uh, the bloody woman, the apostate church, in chapter 17. So two mysteries, two churches. And we also have two sets of seven. We have seven heads on the beast, and then we also have seven candlesticks and seven churches. So you can see a parallel here. Two mysteries, two churches, two sets of sevens. And when you look at uh, the seven churches, in verse 11, Jesus specifically refers to those churches. In verse 11, Jesus told John, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, what you see write in a book and send it to the seven churches which were where? Which were in Asia. Right, and they were, if you look on a map in Bible days in the first century, you'll discover that there were literally seven real churches there in Asia, or Asia Minor, which is uh, now the area that we, call, uh, that we call Turkey, or that's called Turkey. So the seven candlesticks were literally seven literal churches. And you can, uh, you can you know, look at the map and you can study history. Those churches were Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, uh, Thyatira, if I can remember them all right, and then Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And as I put these pieces together, it seems to me that what's happening is that we have, at that time, we have Asia as the location of the church of Jesus Christ, or the seven churches of Jesus Christ. Literally, they were right there, the true church. And then we have the false church over in Italy, sitting on the, uh, within the city of seven hills. So are you following me? Two mysteries, two churches, two sets of sevens, and two literal lo locations. God's church was in Asia, and the apostate church was in Italy. Two literal places. Now here's where the principle of dual application comes in. If you've studied Revelation chapter 2 and 3, most people recognize this, and our church recognizes this, the spirit of prophecy recognizes this, that the seven literal churches in Asia have another application. That they, that's right, that those seven churches also represent seven phases or periods in the history of Christianity, starting with Ephesus, which was the early church, moving into the time of uh, Smyrna, moving into the time of Pergamos, into the time of Thyatira, the time of Sardis, the time of Philadelphia, and the time of Laodicea. And which, uh, which phase are we in right now? We're in Laodicea, right, all the way over here in America. We are part of those seven, those seven phases. So the phases of the church reach all the way down even to us living in the United States. Uh, and to me, that's, that's very significant. And it's, it's just fascinating. I don't have time to go into it right now, but I've recently been re-reading and re-studying those seven churches, and it is amazing. I have a new appreciation for the fact that the book of Revelation is called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus gave that revelation to John, he looked down the stream of time 
He saw the history of his church and he described with stunning accuracy, stunning accuracy, what those phases of his church would be. He saw what would happen in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira, uh, the rise of, of Jezebel in, the, in Thyatira and what would happen in Philadelphia with the open door. I set before you an open door. He shuts a door, he opens a door and then goes all the way down to Laodicea. Jesus saw it all in advance. He saw it perfectly. And it just gives me a deeper respect for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his uh, supernatural, infinite knowledge where he sees what is going to happen throughout the history of his church, of his own church. So I think it's pretty clear from that verse and that passage that we can see there is a legitimate dual application principle. Are you following me? We have seven literal churches and we have those same churches also apply to the history of the church. And that is, uh, is very solid information. Now let's go back to Revelation chapter 17. In chapter 17, I see the same principle applying to the seven kings. That in verse 9, the seven heads, which is the symbol, are the seven mountains where the woman sits. There's a literal application to the literal place where the literal, where the woman has her headquarters. Just like there were literal churches in Asia. But here we have uh, a dual application. In verse 10, the angel continued and said, and there are seven kings. So the heads represent literally seven mountains. And then the dual application is the angel also applies them to seven kings that span the ages. Now, who are these, who are these seven kings? The angel said, there are seven kings. Uh, back to the other principle I've mentioned, the Daniel and Revelation principle, I've concluded that the best way to understand who these kings are is to stick to Daniel and Revelation. Because I've mentioned chapter 17, takes us to chapter 13, takes us to chapter 12, takes us back to Daniel 7, takes us back to Daniel 2, we have these timelines and these sweeps of prophecy that we need to stick within that sequence in order to understand what this is, what this is talking about. Now, turn in your Bibles back to Daniel chapter 7. Revelation 17 links to Revelation 13. Revelation 13 clearly links to Daniel chapter 7. And I know this is how do I say this? This is deep stuff. <laughs> uh, I actually have a uh, another book that I wrote recently called Approaching Armageddon. This is a great book to give out to people that don't know hardly anything about the Bible. I call this Prophecy 101, about the signs of the times, what's happening in the world, that Jesus is coming. Very simple and easy to understand. And then we have the bloody woman and the seven-headed beast. I call this Prophecy 10.0. This book is really not designed for the average uh, you know, atheist out there, for someone that knows nothing about the Bible. This book is designed for people who have some Bible knowledge and who want to go deeper and understand the prophecies of Revelation. So that's what we're doing right here. This weekend at Advent Hope is Prophecy 
This is deep stuff. Uh, I've concluded that Revelation 17 is like a portal to other prophecies and it puts a lot of pieces together that are very, very important for us to understand. So you have to really put on your uh, thinking caps, you know, sort of like Sherlock Holmes and you need to really look at the clues and go deep and uh, sometimes I say that there's two ways to study the Bible. One is, is uh, water skiing and the other is deep sea diving. And this weekend here and what I'm sharing with you right now, this is not water skiing on the surface of the Bible. This is going deep, 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 deep into the books of Daniel and Revelation. So Daniel 7, Daniel has a dream of four great beasts. Uh, it says that in verse 3. He says there were four great beasts that came up from the sea, diverse one from the other. Now notice uh, how many beasts are there? There's four. And as I was studying this, the number four just spoke to my mind. We've got a, a numerical number here. We're trying to figure out who are the seven kings in Revelation and here we have the number four mentioned in Daniel 7 and in verse 17 da uh, Daniel 7 17 the angel says these great beasts which are four and obviously the beasts are symbolic and then he makes the application they are how many kings four four kings which shall arise out of the earth now we know that in Daniel 7, the word king also means kingdom. We know that from verse 23, where the angel clarified, thus he said, the fourth beast, that's the symbol, shall be, and here's the application, the fourth kingdom upon the earth. And what are those four kingdoms? What's the first one? Babylon. Babylon. Second one? Medo-Persia. Third one, Greece. Fourth one, Rome. That's right. And that's pretty common knowledge. Uh, most Christians accept that. Most Bible commentaries accept that. Within the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we certainly accept that, that we've got four, uh, four beasts, and they represent four mighty nations. And again, we're looking for seven kings in Revelation, and now we have four four kings in Daniel 7, which mean four kingdoms. So I've concluded that those kings represent kingdoms. Kings are kingdoms. We see that right here in Daniel 7. Fourth beast, there's four beasts, four kings, and the fourth beast is the fourth kingdom. Are you following me? So I do not subscribe to the, there's a theory out there that applies the seven kings in Revelation to seven popes. I don't uh, believe that. Uh, there's many views on the seven kings in Revelation 17. And I've concluded that the seven kings represent seven kingdoms that are within the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. To me, that makes sense. And it might have been the same angel who talked to John, who talked to Daniel. He said in Daniel 7, there's four kings, 
and they represent four kingdoms. And in, in Revelation 17, there's an angel who tells uh, John that there's going to be seven kings. So that's what we're focusing on in this meeting. Who are these seven kings? Now let's go back to chapter 17. Revelation 17. Revelation 17, verse 10. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue for a short space. So, at the point of this prophecy, five of the kings or the kingdoms are in the past. There is one king, which would be which, which number? If five are behind, which number is? Number six. Right, the sixth king is at the point of this prophecy. And the seventh king hasn't come yet at the point of this prophecy. He's still in the future. Now, I know this takes some close thinking, but verse uh, 11 talks about the beast and the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. So just follow this through. And uh, I don't have my computer today. In, in a previous presentation, I had all this on the screen. I have slides so you can kind of see the, the visual aid. And we do have this on our, we'll, it will be on our White Horse Media YouTube channel soon so you can see this. But you have to follow closely that when it comes to the kings, five kings are fallen and the sixth king is and the seventh one has not yet come. And at the same time, the beast was and the beast is not. And the reason why he is not is because he's wounded which we talked about. And then we've got, uh, he is the eighth who comes back. So here's the, here's the point, that at the time that the sixth king is, it's at the same time that the beast itself is not. Are you following that? The, when the sixth king is, the beast itself is not. And then the seventh king comes, and the beast comes back following me? I know it's, you know, it takes some real, real thinking to figure this out, but that's what we have here. We have five kings are down, one king is, the sixth one, and the seventh one's coming, and then we also have the beast was, and he is not because he's wounded, and he's going to come back as well. So, the key issue to interpreting this correctly, I believe, is that we need to establish a point of reference. We need to establish when is is. The sixth king is when. And the beast that was is not when. When are we talking about? And I think I pretty much built a good case uh, earlier today that the point of reference is the time of the wounding of the beast when he was wounded. Uh, if we go back to chapter 17, verse 3, we looked at this earlier. I'll just give you a quick recap. Verse 3 says, He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. John is in the wilderness when he sees this woman and this beast. This beast has no crowns on its uh, heads or on its horns, indicating that it is in a, 
uh, wounded state. And Revelation 13.3 says it would have a deadly wound. Specifically in verse 3. 13.3 says one of the heads would be wounded to death, but the deadly wound was healed. And I built my case earlier that what is the pivotal year in history when the, the papal beast that ruled during the 1260 years of the Dark Ages, when, what was the year when he was wounded? That's right. He was wounded in the year 1798. And I know a lot of times, uh, you know, people kind of look with skepticism upon this whole prophecy. But the reality is that these are God's words in the book of Dan books of Daniel and Revelation. And the, the significant thing is, is that that period of time is mentioned seven times in the Bible. And that's a lot. That's a lot. It's mentioned twice in Daniel, five times in the book of Revelation. This is not a minor prophecy. It's a major prophecy. I believe that the day-year principle and the historical validity of the 1260-year prophecy is solid. In fact, there's a man that I just I learned about who's a pastor in Maryland, and he's doing his uh, doctoral dissertation in South Africa uh, on, all on historicism, where he looks at the preterist view that it's all in the past, and the futurist view that it's all in the future, and what's called the historicist view that takes you down throughout history, which was the Protestant view. And I plan on contacting this man and maybe interviewing him uh, for one of our White Horse Media programs. Because we need to understand history and prophecy. They go together. And this, the 1260-year uh, prophecy is major in Daniel and Revelation. It's major. And the deadly wound in chapter 13 is very important. And I'm convinced that that is the key to understanding, or at least part of partially understanding, Revelation chapter 17. So if we take that point, John is taken away from his own time. He comes down the stream of time uh, by the Holy Spirit. He's talking to an angel, which is one of the seven last plague angels, which is down near the end. He's taken into the wilderness where the, the woman is now in a wilderness state like the true church was in a wilderness state in Revelation 12. There's no crowns on the heads or the horns indicating that it has been uh, somewhat knocked out of power. And so we have that pivotal date. So if we start with that date, and remember also if, you've, if you study Daniel Revelation, uh, Daniel 12 says that the 1260 the year period is going to take us to what time period? Anybody know? The time of the end. That's right. That, that prophecy takes us to the time of the end, Daniel 12, verse 4. And in the time of the end, something's going to happen. Something significant happens in Daniel 12, verse 4. Anybody remember? The angel said, but you, O Daniel, shut up the words, seal the book until the time of the end. And in the time of the end, something's going to happen. That's right. It says, many will go to and fro, and knowledge will increase. So the knowledge of God's people is going to be increasing from 1798 onward in a way that has not been understood in the history of Christianity. That God has uh, new light, new information for his people in the time of the end. And there are things that can only be understood in the time of the end 
that have not been understood in the past. That's what Daniel 12.4 is trying to tell us. And I believe we are in that time. So, if we take 1798 as our point of reference, from that point, if we, go, if we look back, it says five have fallen. So which five kingdoms in the sequence of Daniel and Revelation would qualify as being, as being behind us? Looking at it from the perspective of 1798. I think the answer is pretty clear. We start with the first four, which are in Daniel 7, right? Babylon, Persia, Greece, Imperial Rome, and then what would be the next one? Papal Rome, exactly. It would be Papal Rome during the 1260 years. So in 1798, five have fallen. Follow me? Babylon, Persia, Greece, Imperial Rome, Papal Rome. And then the next question is, okay, if that's correct, if we've identified the first five kings, then which is, what is the king that is at the same time that the, that the fifth king is going down? Wh what's the answer to that? Well, he here's my view on this, is that we have to again go back to Revelation chapter 13 because that is the, the, the linked chapter like we talked about earlier from chapter 17. 17.8 17, takes us right back to 13.8. Now let's go back to Revelation 13 and let's see if we can put these pieces together. The deadly wound is actually mentioned f three times, no, I, I'm sorry, four times in Revelation chapter 13. Four times the deadly wound is referred to. That's a lot. We see it in verse 3. I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. So there's the first reference. We also see it in, at the end of verse 12. It talks about the second beast would lead people to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. There's a second reference. We see it at the end of verse 14 that it talks about an image of the beast being made, the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. There's a third reference to the wound, and notice in this verse, he's wounded by a sword. And then the fourth time is in verse 10. Verse 10 is another reference to the wound. Verse 10 says, He who leads into captivity... And that's what the Roman church did. It led millions into spiritual captivity during the Dark Ages. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. So he's going to reap what he sows. And then it says, he that kills with the sword. And how did the Roman church, by and large, put people to death during the Dark Ages? It did it through the sword of the civil powers. That's what happened. They pressured the kings to implement their will. And like, let's say you were living in England or France or Germany, and if you uh, didn't believe in the Roman church, if you didn't believe in the Pope, if you were considered a heretic, 
the Pope would tell the king that if you don't put these people to death, these heretics to death, we're going to place your whole country under interdict and nobody can be saved in your entire country unless you carry out the will of the Pope. And so the Popes used pressure, spiritual pressure, and uh, pressured the kings to use civil power to enforce and to carry out death decrees. That's what happened in Europe for over a thousand years. And the text says, he that kills with the sword, he must be killed with what? With the sword. And it was the sword of the French government, the civil authority of France and an army of Napoleon that knocked out the political power of the papacy in 1798. It all fits, doesn't it? That's what happened. And that happened again in 1798. So verse 10 describes the going of the beast into captivity. It's like he's going into the wilderness. His crowns have been knocked off. He's being wounded. He's under judgment. You following me? And so that's where the fifth king went down in verse 10. Now, who is the sixth king? Well, look at the next verse. At the very time that the fifth king is going down, a sixth king is coming up. Same exact time in the sequence of Revelation 13. Verse 11 says, I saw another beast, a new beast. And remember in Daniel, Daniel 7, it says these four beasts are four kings. And the fourth beast is the fourth kingdom upon the earth. So when the Bible says in verse 11, I saw another beast, we're seeing another king or another kingdom that is rising into power. Right? That's what's happening. Another, another beast or kingdom. He's coming up. As the fifth king is going down, the sixth one is coming up. And he's coming up out of the earth, which represents a territory where there's not a lot of people. The beast in Daniel 7 came up out of the sea or the water. And Revelation 17, 15 says that the water represents people, multitudes, nations, and tongues, lots of people. But this beast now is coming up out of the earth, out of a territory where there's not that many people. And he has two horns indicating a separation of power or a division of power. And those horns, significantly, they do not have something on top of them. That's right, they have no crowns. Now, in this, in this case, uh, when you compare this with Revelation 13, verse 1, where the, where the beast in Revelation 13 has, has crowns on its horns, the crowns represent uh, civil authority, uh, monarchies, the governments of Europe that are ruled by kings. Whereas this second beast in chapter 13, 11, he has horns that do not have crowns, which indicate that the government of this nation is not a government that is ruled uh, by one particular king. It's not a monarchy. It's more of a different kind of democratic government that is more of the people, by the people, for the people. 
And those two horns without crowns, it says, are like a lamb. They're lamb-like. And the ultimate lamb, the primary lamb in the Bible is who? It's Jesus Christ, right? He's the ultimate, he's the final or the you know, supreme lamb, the lamb of God. And the fact that this, this new kingdom coming up out of the earth at the same time that the uh, fifth king or the, the beast is going down and being wounded, this, uh, this new beast now has two horns like a lamb. This is amazing that this is the only time in Daniel and Revelation where a beast is given lamb-like characteristics, which would, be, which would indicate Christian characteristics, characteristics that somehow tie into Jesus Christ. It's amazing that there are no beasts, not the lion, the bear, the leopard, the dragon-like beast. There's no beast in the Bible that represents a nation that has characteristics like a lamb except this nation. It's the only one. And significantly also, a lamb is not a beast of prey. The other nations are beasts of prey that, prey that conquered each other. But this is a new kind of nation, two horns like a lamb. And uh, if, if you're taking notes, you might want to jot this down. Matthew chapter 22, verse 21. Uh, I have another talk where I go into great detail. We read this whole section. I don't have time to do it right now. But Matthew 22, 21 is an amazing statement of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, as he was dealing with the, the Pharisees and people that were trying to trap him. He, he asked them to hand him a coin. He held up the coin and he said, whose image is on the coin? They said, Caesar's image is on the coin. And then he said this, this marvelous statement. He said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And that statement coming from the Lamb, coming from Jesus Christ, essentially separates the things of Caesar or government from the things of God that have to do with the church. And if you study history, you'll discover that that principle is the underlying fundamental principle that was woven into the Constitution of the United States government. That the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights that says that Congress shall uh, Shall, shall not have a law, shall not be able to pass a law to establish religion or to prohibit the free exercise thereof, that principle is the principle of Jesus. Separating the uh, legitimate authority of government and the legitimate authority of the church. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God the things that are God's. Congress shall not make a law to establish religion or to prohibit the free exercise thereof. It's, uh, it's brilliant. <laughs> it's brilliant that Jesus made that statement and the main government in the history of the world that has incorporated that principle is none other than the United States of America. That's why we have freedom in this country. Freedom of religion, freedom of, of speech, Freedom of the press, which is declining these days. I'm sure you're aware of that. We're getting closer to speaking like a dragon, which is what the text says. It would have two horns like a lamb, but then it would speak as a dragon. And the struggle between the two horns like a lamb 
and the voice of the dragon is in full sway in America right now. Full sway. We're right in the middle of this crisis and it is, it is growing. Uh, I have another little book called The United States in Bible Prophecy and I deal with this also in The Bloody Woman that I'm convinced that this beast in Revelation 13 verse 11 can apply to no other nation than the United States of America. We fit every detail of the prophecy. And it just again uh, amazes me at the foreknowledge of God. I tell you, we serve an infinite being. We serve an infinite God. John didn't just come up with the book of Revelation. He didn't just make this up. Remember, when John wrote this book, he was an old man. He was a fisherman. He wasn't really an educated person. He never went to college. Uh, he was a, a fisherman. And now he was old and he was on the island of Patmos. And when you read the book of Revelation, this is not the book of a man who's, you know, taken classes on how to write, on how to be a, a you know, literary genius. Uh, he didn't have any of those classes. The entire book of Revelation was given to him as a vision. And he just wrote down what he saw. And in verse 11, he said, I beheld, I saw this beast coming up. Now, how did he know that there would be a great nation down at the end of time that would have a separation of power that would base its constitution and its bill of rights on the principles of Jesus Christ that he taught in Matthew 22, verse 21? How in the world did John know that? <laughs> well, he didn't. <laughs> he didn't know it. He w it was revealed to him by God. Gives me a great respect for the Bible and for the Lord who we serve. Now, okay, so at this point, I think we've, uh, at least to me, it makes sense that five are fallen, which is Babylon, Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, papal Rome during the Dark Ages. One is at the same time that the Roman church went down, the United States was coming up, standing for freedom. So there's the sixth king. Now then the next question is, well, if, if America is the sixth king, then who is the seventh king that will come for a short space? Follow me right now so far? Make sense? Okay, so the plot thickens. <laughs> Uh, you know, this is just, to me, this is very inf interesting uh, information. So I thought about that. I thought, I thought okay, well, Lord, I've got the five down. I know we're at 1798. That's the point where the wound takes place four times mentioned in Revelation 13. And I know who the sixth king is now. It's America coming up, standing up for the principles of freedom. But then who would the seventh king be who hasn't come yet and who's coming for a short space. Okay, I heard a couple of, uh, couple of ideas. Uh, let, me, let me share with you my view and you can, you can judge it in the court of your mind <laughs> and see if you think it's right. Okay, you look familiar. <laughs> I've seen, we've, I've, I've known. Yeah, hey, good to see you. Sometimes I can't see people with their masks on and I, I can see you, sorry about that. <laughs> Didn't mean to do that. Okay, so here's my view of the seventh king. Um, I, I've noticed this, I've studied this, 
that the fourth king being imperial Rome and the fifth king being papal Rome, both on the city of seven hills, that between king number four and king number five, we have phases of the same empire. The fourth king is the Roman Empire in its imperial phase ruled by the Caesars, whereas the fifth king is papal Rome in its papal stage ruled by the popes. It's, a, it's sort of an apostate, Christian, Christianized phase of the fourth king. And if you look at the, uh, you look at verse, go back to chapter 17 and look at verse 11 again. Verse 11 says that the beast that was, that links it with the dark ages, he was during the 1260, he is not because he's wounded, the deadly wound. It says even he is the eighth and he's of the seven and he goes into perdition and the reason why uh, he's the eighth is because he comes back. And we know that from verse, verse 8. The beast that you saw that was and is not, he will ascend. So I see the beast itself that was during the 1260, wounded in 1798. He comes back, which is basically the healing of the wound. So the eighth king is another phase of the Roman Empire. You've got fourth king, imperial Rome, fifth king, papal Rome, and then he's wounded, and then the eighth king is papal Rome who comes back. He ascends out of the bottomless pit. So I thought about this, and I thought, I thought Lord, if the fourth king is a, and the fifth king and the eighth king, these are phases of Rome, then why couldn't the sixth king and the seventh king represent phases of America? If Rome goes through phases in the fourth king, fifth king, and eighth king, then why can't the sixth king and the seventh king be phases of America? And if you go back to chapter 13, Revelation 13, and I'm going to try to wind this up pretty quick. We can take a quick break, and then we'll come back to the last meeting. Uh, if you look at Revelation 13, 11, what happens is that this lamb-like beast in verse 11, he has two, horn -like, two horns like a lamb, but finally, how does he speak? He speaks like a dragon. Now, have we gotten into that phase yet? No, we're, we're getting there, you know, but not quite. I mean, we're, we're moving. The, the two horns like a lamb are still intact to some extent. <clears throat> Religious freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom to peaceably assemble. Uh, these principles of freedom in America are still here, but they're tottering. <clears throat> and we are rapidly moving in to the dragon-like stage, which will be the final stage of the lamb-like beast. And if you look at chapter 13 and keep reading beyond verse 11, what happens is eventually this, this uh, lamb-like beast not only speaks like a dragon, but it sets up an image of the first beast. 
And the image in verse 14, verse 15 says he had power to give life to the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So the lamb-like beast moves into another stage where it speaks like a dragon. It sets up an image. It uses force. And the image comes, comes alive. And it speaks. It passes laws. And ultimately, the law that is passed is described in verse 16. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hands or in their foreheads. So the final conclusion of the lamb-like beast, it shifts into a final dragon-like phase where it sets up an image of the first beast and it enforces the mark of the beast. And another thought on this, that the, this dragon-like stage of America is given another name. In chapter 16, verse 13, and in chapter 19, verse 20, it's given a new name. Anybody know that name? That's right. It is then finally called the false prophet. It's given a brand new ID. And I've concluded that the reason why it's called the false prophet is because when the mark of the beast is enforced, Protestantism in America is going to prophesy. And it's going to say that if, and so will the Vatican. The Vatican and America will unite together and say that if we just go along with the mark of the beast, if we all go along, and I think you know what the mark of the beast is. I'm assuming you do. You've probably studied this. I have a whole chapter in my book on, uh, called The Mark of Rome and Sunday Legislation and how Sunday will be seen as a universal day of rest that will benefit you know, the environment. And that's kind of the direction that we're going in right now. You know that the Biden administration ha is full bore on solving climate change. And if you look at the Pope's encyclical that came out in 2015, right in the middle of that encyclical, Pope Francis says that we all need to keep Sunday. And if we all kept Sunday, this would be healing for the environment, healing for relationships, healing for our relationship with God. And I don't know if you noticed this or not, but when the pandemic hit and the lockdowns took place, people noticed something. The environmental uh, focusing people noticed the fact that because of all the businesses being closed all over the world, that guess what? The skies started clearing up in India. The water started getting cleaner. The smog started going away. And people have realized that lockdowns have actually benefited the environment. It's good for the earth. Maybe not good for your business or for your church, but it's good for the environment. And so, the, the Pope is capitalizing on this. And he's saying he's pushing for a universal day of rest to help post-lockdowns to bring uh, a healing to the environment. And what's going to ultimately happen when the final crisis hits, and that's where we're heading, a final crisis, people are going to say that keeping Sunday is good for the environment 
It's good for families. It's good for uh, our relationships with God and with each other. And they're going to make a prophecy. And the prophecy is that if we all go along with a universal Sunday law, it's going to be good for our future. And let me ask you, is that a true prophecy or a false prophecy? That's right. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's not going to solve the problems of this earth. It's not going to clean. It's not going to help the environment. Uh, In fact, it's going to result in more judgments, which are ultimately going to lead to the seven last plagues, the final seven last plagues. So I believe that's why America is eventually given a new name, and the new name is the false prophet, because during the final crisis, which we are on the verge of right now, the uh, idea is going to be put forth that if everybody goes along with the Pope's recommendation for Sunday legislation to help battle climate change and immorality and all the things that are happening on this planet, that is going to be a false prophecy because it's not going to solve any of the world's problems. It's It's just not. And so go back to chapter 17. Revelation 17, verse 10, says, There are seven kings, five are fallen. Babylon, Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, papal Rome, during the Dark Ages, one is, that's America. And the other is not yet come. At this point, he still hasn't come. But he's getting closer. And when he does come, which is the seventh king, which is an apostate form of America, denying religious freedom, denying the Constitution, denying the principles of Jesus Christ, going along with the papal power uh, and, and prophesying that if we all keep the day that goes back to the Roman Catholic Church, it's going to solve the problems of this world. When he comes and when that dragon finally speaks, how long will he continue? He's going to continue for a short space. And that has really impressed me and given me a courage that when the forces of America and the Vatican in the context of a global crisis finally come together and the mark of the beast is enforced and all the powers of darkness are targeting the people of God who don't go along with the mark of the beast, we can encourage each other when that final crisis hits and we can say, hold on, don't give up your faith. Keep trusting Jesus, hold on, because this seventh king is only going to last for a short time. If we can just make it through, you know, make it through that final short space through trusting in Jesus Christ, He is going to come down from the sky with power and great glory and deliver the people of God. So that's what I've learned from from these seven kings, that the seventh king's not here yet. We're almost there. We can see it happening. We can see the dragon starting to speak in America. And we know that when the final crisis hits, it's only going to last for a little while. And when that time finally comes, Jesus Christ is almost here. (laughs) I'll uh, close this section with chapter 19, verse 11. 
11 to 16. When the short space finally hits, we're going to be looking up. <laughs> looking up, saying, Lord, we're in the final space. It's time for you to come down. <laughs> time for Jesus to come down. Down from the sky. Chapter 19, verse 11 says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he does judge and he makes war. Jesus is coming down to make war on all the global forces of evil, on uh, apostate America in its dragon stage, upon the power that sits on the city of seven hills, enforcing the mark of the beast. Jesus is coming down and then the world is going to come against the people of God. Remember it says if we don't go along with the image of the beast, we're going to be killed. And Jesus says, not so fast. It's time for me to come down and deliver my people. He's coming down to make, to make war. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written that no man knew but he himself. And that's because of what he went through in Gethsemane and the cross. Nobody will understand what he went through. He's clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. We need to follow the Word of God in the midst of all of these issues. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress and the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Jesus is going to come down. Well, I can see I've gone a little over my time. So we need to have a prayer. And then uh, I guess we'll have, what, about a 15-second break? <laughs> and then we'll just, we'll just keep on going. You ready to keep going for the last part? Okay, let's pray. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for the study of your word. Thank you for the prophecy of Revelation 17 that tells us what's behind us, what's happening right now, and what is coming for a short space when the mark of the beast is enforced. And thank you that you've given us uh, this word that it will only be for a short time when everything goes crazy and we don't need to be afraid. We just need to hold on and trust in you that Jesus will come down from the, the sky to make war on the devil and his angels and the evils of this world to deliver the people of God. We pray for your blessing as we finish this meeting and go into the last one. Please help us to understand Revelation 17. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.